Welcome to episode 414 with my guest, Akshay Nanavati. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. It's a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. Uh, the show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. Uh, I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. Uh, the website for this show is mentalpod.com. Mentalpod is also the social media handle. You can follow me slash the show at. I uh, want to jump into some, some surveys right away. Uh, we're going to be reading some body shame surveys uh, today in addition to some of the other ones. I haven't, I haven't uh, really delved into these in a while. Uh, this first one is filled out by a woman who calls herself Asian mom's daughter. And the question, what do you like or dislike about your body and why? She writes, I've always been conventionally attractive and thin, but like everyone else who doesn't have a six pack, my belly protrudes when I wear tight shirts or dresses, whatever, right? When I bought an amazing red backless floor length dress for my wedding online, I tried it on and excitedly texted my mom a picture. The first thing she replied with was, Look at your belly, exclamation point. I told her that's rude, and I already look pretty good. She said, yeah, you look good, but you don't look perfect. Believe it or not, I was pissed and started working out, thinking I'll at least try to look my best for my wedding. It's been months after my wedding, and my belly still shows in tight dresses. Because, duh, but now I'm fit and in the best physical health of my life. Um... You know, first of all, fucking bums me out to to hear anybody say that to somebody about their body, uh, regardless of whether it's a friend or a parent or a loved one. But you look good, but you don't look perfect. I mean, the amount of dysfunction that has to be, and I don't mean like crazy dysfunction, you know, beer bottles flying across the room, everybody's getting carted off to jail, but I mean that, like that tense, nobody can really relax their assholes kind of dysfunction, you know, where it's, I just, you know, I completely get the feeling that, that you're probably upper middle class and that that there's just this premium put on not only how you look but how comfortable your mom is with her body and how comfortable she is around her friends you know that surfacey kind of uh relationship that people often seem to have the more money they get um and I'm not knocking money uh but it's such an easy distraction. And ultimately, I feel like, you know, your parents may provide all this kind of stuff for you, send you to college and all of that. But if there's still walls there, it doesn't matter how dressed up the walls are. There's still fucking walls. And it really just sounds like there is walls. Your mom is surrounded by walls. And to compensate, she thinks perfection will keep her safe. And it's such, I chased that illusion for fucking years. And it is a prison of our own making. Thank you for sharing that. 
um, on the radio shares she, she writes, today I disliked my entire body. I went to yoga, but it didn't feel challenging enough. So after class, I went home and did more. I still didn't like my body. Tomorrow, I might like one or two features, like my eyes. Yesterday, I broke small capillaries beneath my eyes by purging. Uh, I hate to say it, but the first thing I thought of was, I've broken capillaries in my eyes because I was constipated and impatient. <laughs> and I wish I was making a joke. Um, and that's not to minimize what you're going through, but, um, it, it's, um, until we decide we're enough, nothing will ever be enough. We have to be the ones to say, okay, there is no longer a competition. There's just connection. Honestly, it's like you can live your life viewing it as a competition or you can view it as an opportunity for connection. And not connection with everybody, because some people are toxic, but yeah. Uh, Mark sent an email, and uh, he writes, I know you're a fan of Pop-Tarts. Well, let's qualify that. Unfrosted Pop-Tarts. Don't even fucking get me started on why they would put sugar on unfrosted Pop-Tarts. And what kind of animals would eat those? Uh, He writes, I know you're a fan of Pop-Tarts. I would love to get your take on the following story. And it's a story about a woman taking a plea deal after she was busted trying to smuggle drugs into prison in a Pop-Tarts box. And he wrote, "Uh, this raises a couple of questions for me. What flavor of Pop-Tarts go well with meth? I wrote back, all except chocolate. I think that's pretty obvious. Uh, Were they frosted or unfrosted? Frosted, because putting frosting on a Pop-Tart is a criminal act. So I can't imagine criminals would be eating anything but a criminally dressed Pop-Tart. And three, does this woman deserve the death penalty? And I wrote no, but life in prison without the possibility of a toaster which would be its own death penalty. Thank you for sharing that, Mark. This is a happy moment filled out by Fragmented Heart. She writes, um, I love little moments like this. Lying in bed one afternoon with my parents and younger sister just hanging out and chatting. I remember laughing and smiling and just feeling safe and happy before my parents fighting, before all the fear and shame of bullying, before everything. Uh, and then I remember feeling similar, similarly around the same time, just watching TV one afternoon with my mom. She fell asleep on one arm around me, and I felt so safe. At least I did have a time in my life where this was possible. Thank you for sharing that. And I wanted to read this because I think this relates to the one about the mother who said, um, you look good, but you don't look perfect. That's, that's not what a child needs. A child needs these moments that she just shared, those little moments of just being a parent, just being present with them. This is a body shame survey filled out by um, Alice, and she writes, I identify as female, but also as a gender. Like, I have a sex, I'm female, but I am not any gender. Um, so I, I guess I will refer to Alice as 
uh, as she. Um, or I could refer to Alice as they. Um, Alice writes, I hate my breasts. I've always hated them. I didn't know what this feeling was until I was in my early 20s and met my current best friend who is trans. It's gender dysphoria. I often often am just going about my day and have a sudden urge, sudden surge of anxiety. I feel it in my stomach and it's the discomfort of having these breasts. They're not large, but still they exist. Sports bras still allow some jiggle. Binders make my back hurt since I sit all day for work. I often sleep in sports bras because I'm so disgusted by them moving around, like udders. I used to date only men and in the past few years finally realized I'm homoromantic and now only date women. I forced myself to be, quote, feminine while dating guys. I honestly don't want men to, quote, check me out, but it makes me feel like I don't exist when men quickly avert their eyes from me. Or when I'd be out with a friend who is very feminine and made ogle her uh, like I'm a garbage can. It's an uncomfortable paradigm. I want validation as a human, but I also don't want to be objectified. Boy, that that is a packed statement right there. I mean, doesn't that... Isn't that like the crux of so many of our lives? I want validation, but I don't want to be objectified. I mean, that that is just distilled. So many struggles just distilled perfectly to that sentence. Uh, since my friend always had her breasts on display, she got a lot of attention and would complain about it, but we both knew she secretly liked it. Uh, we are such a hypersexual society, and I am so not. I'm confronted with this every day, everywhere. And as a female, if I don't have my tits out, I'm not a valid human. I would love to have top surgery, but I really don't have the time for recovery right now. Plus, I'm terrified of surgery. Even if I were to have surgery, I'd still have all the mental ramifications of my lack of gender as outlined above. Thank you so much for that, Alice. Um, I was very illuminating for for me to um, hear you share what it's like to be you and to struggle with what you uh, struggle with because I, I I don't have any concept of, of what that would be like and I feel like if more of us got to know people whose battles are completely unlike ours we would we would see that while the things that cause us distress may be different, the distress is the thing that binds us together in so many ways. And the other thing I wanted to say is there are men out there who don't objectify. Um, and... As far as where are you going to find them, what percentage of the male population are they, I don't know. But as a man who used to be a constant objectifier um, who and who I like to think is no longer, um, not only can men change, but the men I'm around, I don't have men in my life that treat women uh, like that. And so I know firsthand that there are men like that. Um, but I found them in support groups. Uh, yeah, you're not going to probably find them in a fraternity or at, uh, you know, dollar beer nights, but they're out there. 
I want to give a shout out to BetterHelp, uh, who is our sponsor. They provide online therapy and they're awesome. And I love doing online therapy every week from the comfort of my recliner. Uh, we do it, uh, through video with my wonderful, wonderful therapist, Donna, and she helps me with so many things. And I'm a big fan of BetterHelp and the feedback from you guys has been great. Those of you that have tried it. Um, so if you want to try it, go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental so they know you're coming from the podcast. And fill out a questionnaire and they'll match you up with a betterhelp.com counselor and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you and you need to be over 18. Oh, and by the way, this upcoming interview uh, with Akshay, holy shit, uh, I must have been in between a med change or something, but as I was listening to it, editing it, um, I just thought, normally, I can be a little slow to find words sometimes, but uh, boy, this episode, I I think it was early in the morning too. Anyway, this is an awful moment filled out by Jordan, and uh, she writes, when I woke up in the hospital after trying to kill myself by taking a bottle of Klonopin, I realized I was wearing a t-shirt that said, not today, Satan. On top of that, my then fiance was pissed at me that I left him out of the suicide note. I'm now single. There's a part of me inside that I don't want anyone to know about because it's weird and gross and lame and people will hate me. It was so hard to be on the planet. Just doom, people pleasing, dread, silent, invisible, just wailing, stuck in the grip of the obsession, derealization, depersonalization, the suicidal ideation. I was so embarrassed and so full of shame. If I don't get help and get what I need to get, you know, I did some horrible, horrible things. Then I'm not going to be here much longer. God, I wish I could go back and undo them, but I can't. So snipers would shoot in our sides. My father was a notorious pimp in Boston. I can't do this anymore. It was kind of like Scottface. You can change somebody's life just by listening. Through vulnerability, uh, it comes healing. It felt like I'd been holding a sword and shield, and I dropped them. And to this day, I have never had a better night's sleep. I started crying in a job interview saying, <laughs> and I was like, LA is hard, man. LA is so hard. And I, I didn't get that job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here with Akshay Nanavati. I'm pronouncing that correctly? Yes, sir. Yes. Uh, you are in, uh, a Gulf War veteran, uh, Marine, ex-Marine. Um, or do you still consider yourself a Marine? Once a Marine, always a Marine, yes. as they say. I had the feeling that was, that was going to be the uh, same. Uh, you emigrated from India mm -hmm. when you were 13 to Texas, of all places. But fortunately for you, you landed in awesome. Austin. Yeah. yeah. Um, you struggle with alcohol, PTSD, um, depression. Um, what, what, what else? Am I, what other fun stuff other am fun I missing? <laughs> it was drugs when I first moved to Texas. Soon after moving, I lost two friends to drug addiction. Was kind of headed down that. So that was before the Marines, and then after that, it led me to the PTSD, depression, alcoholism. And all that fun stuff, yeah. Well, <laughs> let's let's set the stage with your life uh, in India. Mm -hmm. uh, you're originally from Mumbai? I was born in Bombay, then okay. moved to Bangalore when I was okay. three. And and why do you not call it Mumbai? Mumbai. <laughs> I think, so, I was grew, grew up calling it Bombay. I think they shifted oh. it to Mumbai as a sort of okay. rejection to the English, you know, that took over yes. and, and moved it to Bombay. But it's just my habit pattern. That's gotcha. what I grew up. But yeah, but okay. now it is Mumbai officially. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, 
and what what do you give me some seminal moments from your life in India that because um, when I, I I think I like in an episode is a mon- mental emotional arc mm. of someone's mm. life how mm. they view themselves the world around them and Absolutely. what they've Love experienced that. yeah. You know, so I moved out of India when I was eight to Singapore for five years before I moved to the U.S. And looking back, I realized that this this person that I am, there was a lot about me, this addictive personality, this 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 idea to push the limits. I remember when I was in India, big into sports, always in sports day, played everything, basketball, rugby, running. Uh, you know, and I remember when I used to play rugby, I would every time I would fall and I would get cut. I love the scar. It was like this battle scar that I earned, you know? And now in hindsight, I see how that translates into who I've become today. But it took me a bit to recognize that. And I think all the moving, I have no regrets. And obviously, I don't blame my parents. In fact, they traveled a lot because they saw travel as a value of education. Right. So from Singapore, we went everywhere, New Zealand, Australia, Vietnam. They took me around a lot. So I've been really blessed, great parents. But all the moving, I guess initially, I was a little lost about who I am, who I wanted to be. You know, and so when I moved to the U.S., that clearly showed up. I see. And uh, that's what led me down. Again, I don't blame my friends. I take responsibility for my actions, but it led me down this path of getting into drugs and just then again, I took the drugs to that level too. I would channel it through this very extreme way. Me and this one other guy in my group were the first person to start going into hard drugs, mm-hmm. you know? So very lost initially. Yeah. yeah. Um, when you think back on those times when you... Um, looked at the scars with pride Mm. um well first of all was your family uh wealthy they they are now they're very i mean they weren't like we weren't poor or anything but my dad had rising up the corporate ranks or earlier on he was you know not so well off there was one story i always remember where we didn't have a tv and me and my i don't remember this but my family told me later my mom told me that we wanted to watch some show and we my my dad like the neighbor wouldn't let us watch it, so my dad got a advance from his company to buy a TV so we could watch this one show we wanted to watch. So we weren't super well off, but okay. he rose up the ranks in his corporate career okay. over time. Yeah. Was there a um, kind of a unspoken or spoken feeling in your family that you are your achievements? That's a great question. I think that, you know, I, looking back, um, my dad was definitely someone who would, you know, push to do things. Very focused. Yeah, you know, he did well. I mean, he spent 27 years in 3M, retired as the managing director for 3M India, so did very well in his career. Yeah. And so definitely pushing to do more, to be, I mean, we weren't allowed to watch TV when we moved to Singapore, so we'd always be downstairs playing. Mm -hmm. So they encouraged a lot of that, yeah. Was there love and praise outside of accomplishing things? Or or did kind of outward affection get a bump up when you achieved or did an extraordinary thing? There was definitely love and affection outside of that, especially for my mom. My mom was always this softer and loving person. And not to say my dad's not loving, but a little bit more, you know, I didn't show it as much. So I had, they were great, but, um, but I think that there was still that there, like, especially with my mom, you know, she was always very loving. She put up with a challenging kid. I got mm-hmm. caught bullying in Singapore and this, that, and other thing kicked out of suspended from school. But I'm yeah. always very Bull- loving. Bullying? Yeah, yeah. I was the bully in okay. Singapore. Yeah. Okay. Not so so you had some anger? 
Yeah, she caught me <laughs> getting into a big fight in school. She had come to sort of volunteer at some school thing, and I got into a huge fight, you know, with somebody. Uh, I can't remember what it was about, but I just I still remember sort of swinging at this guy. My mom had to sort of help break it up, so she didn't like seeing that. Got bullied. Got, I mean, got suspended. I think twice for your bullying mom these was kids. swinging at a guy. No, no, I was swinging. My mom oh, was trying okay. to pull me. <laughs> Not my mom. <laughs> she was not a fighter. Okay. <laughs> but I was. And then I got caught bullying a few times. So, But there was always love. I mean, I never, looking back, I mean, I couldn't have asked for better parents. You know, okay. I had a great childhood. They put me in the best schools, everything I could have wanted. Okay. I always yeah. like to try to find if there is a, a kind of a source of where yeah. that being hard on ourselves no, com- I love that. Comes, comes yeah. from. Uh, and sometimes it's from a family and it's very kind of verbal and it's yeah or sometimes it's just there's a lack of love for just being you mm. you know love is withheld and and um and i'm sure it's how the parents were raised yeah. and that's just what yeah. being a good parent is yeah. is to them but i tend to find with people i know um the the, the feeling that you are what you do um, usually comes from uh, some type of message in, yeah. in childhood. That it's, yeah, it's funny so you say that, you know, as you mention it. And again, I don't think my dad meant it, but sometimes it'd be like, if I would run, he'd be like, why don't you swim? You know, if I'd play a single sport, why don't you play a team sport? You know, it was always like, do this other thing. And uh, so you didn't often get noticeable praise, but it wasn't something that he meant. He's not like, you know, he, again, not abusive or anything like that, but it's just the subtle things that I, now that you mentioned, it was like, do this other thing. You know, it's never yeah. going to be enough, uh, which I can be present to now. And I've actually even recently talked to him about it, and yeah. he's acknowledged that he probably could have handled it sometimes better. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think every yeah. every parent is going to, you know, mm-hmm. filter yeah. stuff through their own shit. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's we we teach algebra and all these other subjects where you know if somebody wants to be an engineer it's certainly a, a an important class to have but mm-hmm. everybody needs to know how to understand emotions and if they're going to be a parent how to raise a child and yet we never teach oh, that and that kind of boggles my mind. Yeah. My, my mind's, yes, I have two minds. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. It's yeah. I'm recording earlier than I normally do during uh, uh, the day, so my mind is moving very, very slowly, but as I get more tea into me, <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be picking things up a bit, and my mouth will be uh, catching up. Um, so, any other memories from India before you moved to Singapore? Not so much. I don't have uh, the best <laughs> long-term memory. So I remember, you know, I was always good with meeting new people, mm-hmm. got close friends in India. Same thing when I moved to Singapore, made friends uh, fairly easily every move, you know. But uh, your, Was your family religious? My No, not so much. My mom would probably be closer to the Hindu thing. My dad, not religious at all. Okay. Like, I think he lives a very spiritual way of living. Like, he's a very Zen-type person. Mm-hmm. Nothing phases him. He stays very calm, but... Um, but my mom was more of a practicing Hindu in some ways. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so any other moments from Singapore before you moved to, uh, the States? Uh, similar deal when I moved to Singapore, I'm very nervous about moving there again, all these unknowns, what's going to happen, but adjusted well, made some friends. 
similarly, I was, I was always into athletics, like even pushing myself. I used to run barefoot on this rock thing in behind our building because I wanted to test myself. So I, I, looking back again, I realized that there was elements of this triggered out, triggered throughout my uh, journey. It just got channeled in a negative way when I moved to the U.S. But yeah, that was mostly in Singapore, again, getting suspended a few times. So <laughs> unhealthy outlets for my energy. But mostly, again, sports was a big part of my life. I'm, a lot. I'm going to take a wild guess that you either do zero or ten. Five is difficult for you. <laughs> Realize I'm not it's, good with moderation. <laughs> you know, people that struggle with uh, addiction, that is the... That's it. I, I've yet to meet an addict or an alcoholic that is good with, at least untreated early on, that is good with nuance and yeah. doesn't go into black and white thinking, catastrophizing or grandiosity. Mm, you know, mm. I tend to be either the king or the peasant in, mm. in my, uh, or as, as someone quoted years ago, and I would love to know who it, it was, that I'm a piece of shit the world revolves around. That way you mm. can get both of them. Mm, you can be the like king and the peasant like both at the same powerful. time. And it, it, in my mind, those are both That's ways powerful. of keeping us stuck in self. Because when we compare ourselves to other people, which to me is where the ego lives, the ego cannot conceive of being one of many. And to me, that's where peace exists mm. in being one of many and that interconnectedness yeah, of, yeah. With, with humanity. But um, enough of my... Uh, no. proselytizing let's get <laughs> let's get back to to you it took me years to realize this because i used to think that my survival depended on me being impressive and standing out and then i wondered why i felt so apart from everybody yeah. and it's like well i've been i work 23 hours a day to try to stand out and then what i want to feel a part of what what the fuck am i doing yeah yeah, yeah. No, I get it. it the, the recent awarenesses have gotten me to that phase myself through some of the journey, uh, so I can relate to where you're at now. Yeah. It took me a little bit to figure it out, too. <laughs> so uh, you moved to Austin at 13. Moved to Austin, yep. Moved to Austin at 13, goofy little kid with an English accent because I moved from a British school. So I remember I used to say things like lift. And earlier on in my school, I was like, where's the canteen? But it's a cafeteria here, not a canteen. <laughs> Can we take the lorry? <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> so, uh, but once again, I adjusted well, made friends, you know, uh, just, and like I said, I don't blame my friends, but I always look back, let's say I had found a group of friends who were mountaineers or ultra runners. I probably would have molded into that facet because again i wasn't sure who i am who i wanted to be i wasn't one of those kids i was just talking to somebody earlier today who was one of those kids at kindergarten kind of knew where she wanted to be you know certainly not that <laughs> far yes. from that so as a result i got in this group of friends we started drinking doing drugs and me and one other guy in my group as always looking back you know in india and singapore we were the first one to channel it in no intense way so we me and this one other guy were the first one to start going into harder drugs and like what so first we started with lsd uh, and we took it to a different level. Like, I mean, I remember doing 18 hits of acid once. If you have You've context, got that's, to be kidding you me. know how, yeah, it was insane. How are you still here? Right. <laughs> it was insane. I still like flashes of memory from that night. We, me and one other guy decided to just test the line. And we, I mean, we used to do LSD regularly, but we kept pushing the line from one hit to two to three. Eventually, I think the farthest we got was 18 in one go, uh, got into cocaine 
uh, and I was in a phase that I was looking for any drug that came my way. Thankfully, more did not come my way at the time. But me and this one other guy who got into, who started going from alcohol and marijuana to harder stuff, he ended up, he's dead today. He OD'd on heroin. So it could have easily been me. And did you ever try heroin? I did not get that far. I uh, think you should give it a shot. <laughs> you don't know what you're missing. I'm missing on something. You know, people give it a bad rap. But... If you can survive the first decade of being addicted to it and losing everything and everybody, there's a certain joy of accomplishment. <laughs> no, I, I cannot wrap my head around. I smoked opium once, and mm. it was one of the best highs I ever had. And mm. I remember at 16 thinking, I am glad this is not widely available, mm. even though mm. I wanted it. I I knew, you knew the, this would yeah. have been an issue, and the same thing with uh, with cocaine. Yeah. I, um, so fortunately, alcohol and weed were enough uh, for me to yeah. get out of myself. But um, I don't I don't understand how how people take that. I you know what? A lot of people that are addicted to pain meds, and then they can't. They're tired of doing the doctor ruse, and so they. Don't go to heroin that. and that yeah. seems to be how a lot of people are are dying yeah. Uh, yeah. nowadays so yeah. um did you were you offered heroin and turned it down you're like no, no 18 I hits of acid is enough for me <laughs> honestly at that phase i wouldn't have turned on anything that came my way thankfully like i said more didn't but i remember still at one point looking for special k uh i remember dabbling in the idea of doing pcp i remember like you know w uh, ecstasy sort of coming into the picture when after I stopped, but it just wasn't available. But I would have done like literally anything, and I kid you not, I uh, like just I was that I was that guy. I was the one who would test the line. If mm -hmm. I mean, I have scars on my arm from cutting. You can see I cutting myself. Took a I have a burn here from lighting a cigar on my arm because I was always pushing the line, you know. But there was no virtue in that pain. That today I seek out pain. It's a very different way. Was the and, was the um cutting yourself and burning yourself was that in the presence of other people to yeah to so it was like here's how tough i am it was exactly it was kind of this demonstrate demonstration of my of my toughness but then it was also a way for because today i realize there's beauty in engaging the struggle and engaging pain but in that context there was no virtue there was no beauty in that it was, it was a ego. shortcut to exactly yes. it was an ego it was a shortcut to this pain i mean i have the scar from i took a hot knife lit it on my arm and it was trying to almost like show, but it was like everything that I had to do was to push it to the next level. So I'm on, you know, whatever it may be, and I'm, let me take it to the next level. How can I push this line? How can I test myself in a new way? And it, again, it could have gotten bad. I used to jump downstairs, you know, like just craziness. What do you think young you was looking for in those moments? It, you know, wanting people to think that you were tough, but then what? Okay, if they thought you were tough, mm -hmm. then then what? I guess, you know, uh, approval. Like I said, I still sort of lost in who I wanted to be. So approval. I wanted to be the... I like being that, I mean, to this day, today, someone I can somewhat recognize traces of that. I like being the person who um, who can take things to another level and show that we are capable of more. Obviously, today it's positive, but... Uh, but, you know, I, I liked that attention, I guess, mm -hmm. you know, so, I, I liked the, 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 I mean, nobody else was doing, nobody else in the group was cutting themselves and burning themselves and jumping down. I used to throw knives up and, you know, and I wasn't like a professional guy. I was just playing with knives and somehow not, 
cutting yes. toes off, you know. Uh, so, I mean, some of the things I did to this day, I don't know how I made it out. Uh, but yeah, just the attention, I guess, and the intensity of that experience. I also like the intensity yeah. of it. Uh, would it be fair to say that there was a conscious or sub unconscious fear of being forgettable? Very much so. At that yes. point, unconscious. Yeah. Uh, now I can be more present to it consciously, but at that point, very much so. And would it be a high if people would say, Akshay's fucking crazy, yeah. man? Yeah, I loved being the, the crazy one, loved being the, the, the recognized one, you know? I mean, I was known for that. Like, again, you, you test it, you say something like, this guy will be the one who, you know, <laughs> who'll go do it. So, uh, I thrived on that, uh, that, that persona. Yeah, cause yeah. then you come to someone's mind. Exactly. Yeah, I get a, a, I, my deepest fear, and I discovered this getting sober and doing the work involved in self-reflecting and, yeah. and, and kind of assessing what your resentments and fears are, that my most recurring fear is that I am forgettable mm-hmm. and my life will be forgettable. And once I had that knowledge, I could see how, why... I would fuck things up mm. because I would react to reality in a way that was really not working. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was selfish mm. and ego driven and kind of desperate and needy and, um, yeah, hurt myself and others. It, yeah. It's, um, it's a miserable way to live when you think that your survival depends on standing out yeah that we're not enough absolutely it blew my mind when somebody said to me um you don't have to do anything to be lovable you just are (laughs) and it's beautiful yeah i I think i started crying because uh it had never occurred to me that i didn't need to do anything yeah to win to win love yeah uh, does that resonate with you very much so i mean to this day you know struggling with that battle of needing to earn my place because beyond all that other stuff the big one was survivor's guilt after the war you know we can come to the chronology of it again in a minute but navigating that was that tough because uh, to, i mean to this day a big part of me feel, feels like i should have died out there lost a friend out there uh and only last year i found out from my staff sergeant my senior marine that our vehicle drove over an active improvised explosive device in the in in the war in iraq and i didn't know this till 10 years later and just finding that out was like whoa what why am i here what right do i have to be here when others were hit with the with what the, the you know the, the bomb exploded so struggled with you that were, do i earn you were there when it exploded or after so, you left so in uh so i found out that my vehicle drove over an active bomb and it just did not explode for whatever reason oh okay for whatever reason and my i didn't know this till 10 years after the war my staff sergeant and one of my buddies in my squad told me this I had no idea. For whatever reason, I just didn't know when we were in the war. I only found out in our 10-year Iraq reunion. We were talking about stuff, and my staff sergeant told me. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> I had no idea. And just, like, pondering, like, what is – why am I here, you know? Because not – I mean, I, like I said, one of my closest friends died in, uh, in Iraq, and uh, I struggled with that. To this day, uh, I feel moments where it was like, why do I deserve to be alive? I didn't get shot. I didn't get lose a limb. What right do I have to be here, you know? So – navigating that place of earning your existence and it can drive me to be uh, to do great things but there's a fine line because it can also drive you to just a miserable inner existence Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I, I think if we're striving to do great things to prove our lovability, it's an empty hole that can never be filled. Yeah. But if we're doing it to give to others without yeah. a desire to be looked at in a certain way, yeah. um, then it can can actually be really beautiful and yeah. kind of transcendent. Yeah. Um, so the desire to join the Marines. How old are you? Uh, I was 19 when I finally went to boot camp, but it took me about a year and a half to get in. Okay. I and how actually, old are you today? Today I'm 33. Okay. Yeah. So I got, I got the movie Black Hawk Down actually was the trigger point to get me out of drugs. Have you seen it? Yeah. Powerful war movie, That right? was the trigger for me to start using drugs. So. <laughs> <laughs> Very upsetting movie. It's intense. Yeah. It's very it is intense. intense. Yeah, it's very intense. And there's a scene in the movie where those two uh, two Delta snipers, Gary Gordon and Randy Sugar, they volunteer to go on the ground to set up a defensive perimeter. Two people, knowing that thousands of armed enemy personnel are headed their way to set up a, to protect Michael Durant, one of the downed pilots. And they did, but they both died. And they received the Medal of Honor posthumously for their valor, which is the highest award in the U.S. military. And Michael Durant is still alive today because of what they did. And that triggered something in me, just, you know, like, how does a human being do that? They knew what they were getting into. The courage to do that, to sacrifice your life for somebody. I mean, it just made me, I mean, right after watching the movie, and to this day, I still remember that day, because we were actually about to go do a bunch of drinking and LSD and stuff. One friend wanted to go watch Black Hawk Down, my friend Luis. Uh, and so I, nobody would go with him, so I said, I'll go. Uh, watched it, and after that, Luis had the book Black Hawk Down, read the book like this, just finished it almost in a, you know, with less than a, in a day or two, and then read book after book on military and combat and just realized that I was living such a selfish and meaningless existence, you know, this drugs, and there was nothing to it. And in separate from all the politics of war, on the ground, there's this experience of intensity, of camaraderie, of service for something greater, not for the country or flag, but for the people mm -hmm. you fight beside. And when, I mean, I got to a point where almost overnight just stopped doing drugs and uh, decided this was my path. This is what I had to do. So kind of like there's a bond I can get behind. Yeah. Because in the Marines, the, your personal well-being doesn't mean anything. Nobody gives a shit about how good you feel. What matters is the men and the mission, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a beauty to that, that you, you have to rise above your feelings in order to accomplish the task at hand. I mean, to this day, that's valuable in my business and in my personal life, that, that idea, right? But in the Marines, it's this tangible way with the camaraderie, the brotherhood that was beautiful. And I wanted to experience that. So it took me a while to get in because I have a blood disorder that two doctors told me Marine Corps boot camp would kill me. So I had to sort of get a bunch of medical waivers, get, you know... What's the blood disorder? It's called thalassemia. Mm -hmm. It's essentially like less hemoglobin in your blood, which hemoglobin transports oxygen. So they said that I, I wouldn't be able to handle boot camp. How um, the fuck are you a long-distance runner? <laughs> it's crazy. I Not only do I have thalassemia, I have flat feet. I have scoliosis. I just found out a few weeks ago I have celiac, and the villi in my esophagus is not is all, is like basically torn, like destroyed, so my body's not able to absorb nutrients. So I got these four things that make me biologically not ideally suited to be a runner. Jesus <laughs> Christ. <laughs> that, is, but, <laughs> that is amazing. So when you saw a Black Hawk Down and read the book, was there a light bulb that went off that here's a way that I can funnel my crazy into a way that's just not getting attention for me, but is more noble? Or was that not a conscious thought? 
I don't think it was as conscious back then. Also, it wasn't so much about like when I realized, I mean, the big reason to drive, to drive me into the Marines was it was almost a shattering of that sense of getting attention. I wanted to go in where you're living in a world where people are dying for each other. People are sacrificing everything for something greater. And it wasn't, it was like a shattering of that self in service of something greater. I mean, yes, a part of me wanted to test myself. It was again, became the way to channel my extreme nature that had been sort of gone through all these different facets in my younger days. I mean, even when I joined in, I wanted to go special forces. I couldn't because I wasn't a U.S. citizen at the time. I was a green card holder. So you can't go special forces or officer unless you're a citizen because it requires a secret clearance. So I was like, okay, I'll go this next best route, the best branch of the U.S. military, the Marines. The first wave in whatever. <laughs> yeah. Right. So that was like, all right, I'll go Marines. And my plan was eventually to go into special forces, uh, to go into Marine recon or Marine force recon at the time. Yeah. But, uh, but that was it to, 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 Really, in this case, it was I wanted to see what it would bring out within me. I wanted to be in a world that lives like that. Because what I came to realize in my understanding of war at the time, again, this was a very naive understanding because you're just reading books, watching movies. But and and, I mean, to this day, I still stand by it. But again, I didn't have the awareness that I do after having gone to war um, that war brings out the best and the worst in humanity. We see people doing awful things, right? Like the Malai massacre, just atrocities of pure yeah. evil. But we also see people sacrificing their lives for each other, sacrificing their well-being, putting everything on the line for someone else. And there's a tremendous beauty to that. And I wanted to experience humanity in that extreme. You know, I've done everything in this extreme way before. Drugs, running on rocks, uh, getting caught playing rugby. Uh, but now it was like... Moving to extreme. Texas as an Indian. Moving. <laughs> exactly. That was, a whole, that was the whole That's the craziest beast, right? thing you ever did. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I was terrified moving to Texas, you know. <laughs> uh, there is a, a great quote by uh, Carl Marlantes. I don't know if you've ever... Uh, read his book, uh, What It's Like to Go to War. I believe I'm, I might be paraphrasing the title of that, oh, but kinda, oh. a brilliant guy. Um, oh. And it has spoken and written uh, a lot about the war experience in the psyche. Mm. And he said, you know, people think that um, war brings out the worst in people. And he said, well, turns people into killers he said it doesn't turn people into killers it's just finishing school um mm. talking mm. about that dark that dark part and mm. he one of the things that he posits in his book is you need to embrace that shadow self not to do bad things but to accept that that is a part of every person yeah. and it doesn't mean you're bad it's what you do with that shadow yeah. self yeah. that you don't shame yourself for if you had to kill somebody to save your friend that you yeah. enjoyed the adrenaline high of that moment um and that was pretty illuminating for yeah. me to understand that that you could morally not like something but you could emotionally get a high from it yeah. that makes you almost disgusted with yourself and it's one of the things that he said nobody we we don't have a ceremony for returning vets 
A, honors what they did, but B, comforts them. He said when he came back from war, he's a Vietnam vet, he so longed for the comfort of a woman, not sexual, but just the gentleness and the nurturing. And uh, why don't we have that? Why don't we, you know, yeah. we build people up into these machines. Yeah. Don't don't think, just act. Yeah. Don't feel. But how do you re-enter society when mm-hmm. you're going to need to think and feel? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, does any of that ring? Oh yeah, hundred percent. I mean, that was one of the most challenging parts about coming back. I mean, there's a beauty and a simplicity to the experience of war. You know, uh, out there, all you have to worry about is your men and your mission, and that's there's a kind of peace that comes with that. You don't have to. I mean, it's obviously intense in its own way, uh, but there's such a simplicity to that existence. There's no middle this ground. This world is so much more complicated. And when I came back, I mean, like, like little things, like you said, I mean, meeting girls again was something, oh man, I was nervous about meeting girls again. Everything became paying bills again. Everything is complicated in this world. I mean, as soon as I came back, I was itching to go back. I tried to go back to Iraq, go back to Afghanistan, you know, because again, I had, when I came back, so the friend that I lost, I lost him before I went. So when, when I joined my unit, we were, we, this guy, Neil, he, we became very, very close. We were the same kind of Marine. We did everything together. We like would run together. We would compete on the rifle range, but I always beat him by a few points. I beat him by a few points in the rifle range, beat him by a few seconds on, um, on, on the run. And so we volunteered to go together. We, we were the only two guys in our unit volunteering every chance we could get. Send us to war, send us to war. We wanted to go together. Twice the Marines told us we'd go. Last minute they canceled it. So one summer while I was vacationing in India, he ended up finding a unit to go with. And, um, you know, I still remember when we, when he was in training, he used to call me a lot and kind of mess with me. He would, he told me like once, I mean, he would call me and saying that I'm not, I didn't volunteer to go with him because of my girlfriend at the time. Mm-hmm. So one time he called me and I was standing next to my girlfriend and I saw his name, Neil, on my phone. I didn't answer it because he would mess with me and I was standing next to my girlfriend. I didn't want that. And I never got the tr- a chance to talk to him again. He was a good Marine. So he was promoted to corporal and he was placed in a vehicle that was hit. He was in a seat that got hit with an IED. And I always felt like if I had I should have, I had no right to go out there and have fun in India. I was, I was, you know, fucking around in India and I had no right to do that. I should have been there with him and it should have been me that got that promotion and died instead of him. So when I came back from the war, I didn't get shot. I didn't lose a limb. Why did I have a right to be alive out of that? I mean, when I even went to Iraq, I gave away all my stuff. I went with a admittedly naive perspective that if someone's going to die in war, let it be me. And I realized that I can't control that. I mean, you could be on a patrol. Somebody could get shot. There's nothing you could do. But to me, it was like if somebody was going to die, let it be me. Let it be me because I don't have a right to to be alive here, to be here. It should have been me already that was gone. So I struggled when I came back, you know, and it was really hard readjusting to this complex world, to feeling, to then denying your feelings. Then not only are you feeling guilty about that, you're feeling guilty about feeling guilty because I feel like, why should I be struggling? I didn't go through shit in the war. There's people who've suffered way more than me, who've done heroic things. I didn't do a damn thing. I just, I was no hero. What right did I have to to even feel bad about feeling, you know, about mm-hmm. feeling these struggles. And and now as you hear yourself say that, you intellectually understand those are lies, right? I do. You know, intellectually I get that even like even if I intellectually I also get even if I had gone to war with him, he could have still died and I could have still come back. Intellectually I get that. Emotionally it still doesn't take away from that fact that sometimes that it's still, you know, that uh that 
the guilt is still there. I mean, even when we came back, I had a junior Marine. If mine killed himself, he shot himself in the head. And three weeks before that, he told me, Corporal Nanavati, can you take me out rock climbing? And I said, sure. I didn't. We got busy in life. He killed, I don't know if he killed himself. I don't know if rock climbing would have saved him, but it, again, Im- rationally, I get that. I don't know if that would have saved him, but emotionally, it doesn't change the fact that those moments hit you, you know? Uh, I was listening to an interview with Joe Walsh. She started a foundation that helps uh, vets, um, uh, believe particularly Vietnam vets, but he shared a statistic that blew my fucking mind. More vets, Vietnam vets, have died by suicide than were killed in the war. Wow, I didn't know it was that much. That's crazy. Yeah. Wow, I had no idea that either. That's shocking. And what those guys went through too. I mean, coming back to a country that hates you for it. I mean, getting spit, I can't even fathom. Spit on you in the airport. And they didn't know. I mean, they they didn't have internet back then, right? They just come back to a country that sent them to war, and suddenly they have no clue what's happening in their world. They come back. I mean, we at least got a hero's welcome. To this day, if somebody hears I'm a veteran, they thank you for your service, which I appreciate again, right? Like, coming, what those guys went through is a different And most of them didn't volunteer. Yeah, exactly. They were drafted. We at least chose it. So, I mean, you're forced into this, and you come back to a country that hates you for doing what you thought you did for your country. It's unfathomable. I mean, what they went through was just, I've met a lot of Vietnam guys since we came back, met a lot of the vets. I mean, just, yeah, it's uh, heartbreaking what sometimes we went through. Uh, Before you went, how, how did you view the morality of potentially having to take a life? You know, I didn't agree with the war. I actually wrote my history thesis on the war. So I was not like naive about having gone in all that bullshit, the lies, this, that, and the other thing. But having gone in, I thought we could have done some good for the people. And to be honest with you, I don't know how this sounds, but I didn't, I felt like if somebody was coming at me or my Marines with a gun, I would have no problem taking them out first. What I struggled more with was the idea of losing my friends. And what I struggled with was the idea of potentially killing an innocent human being. Most of us did not want to do that. There was somebody I know who said, I just want to kill somebody. He didn't give a shit who, he just wanted to kill somebody, which is again, awful. Like I said, you see the worst and the best, right? But the nature of this war, like Vietnam, was a counterinsurgency, right? I mean, you're walking through the streets, you're... Everybody has to is your best friend because you no know, most of us don't want to kill somebody innocent. But you never know which of the person is the one is, is the one who wants to kill you. Like as a small example, when we saw women out there, what the what some of the men started doing because they knew we wouldn't sort of search women like physically mm-hmm. search women. They would wear the burkas and wear suicide vests under them. So every time we saw a woman, we would look at their feet to see if they have manly looking feet mm. because you never know if that person wants to kill you. Is that does that person want to kill you and your friends? So there's this constant on edginess about that experience that you're you know winning these people over you're being best friends you you want to take care of these people because again most of them are just good people want to take care of their family 99 percent of people everywhere i've discovered is just good people want to take care of their family want to live a normal life like the rest of us there's only a handful who want to watch the world burn you know and i mean the insurgents were killing more iraqis than they were killing us they tried to shoot a rocket at our base and killed four iraqi civilians across our base so so yeah no so we were just you know we we didn't want that to happen. We really tried to help the people that we were there to help. And I mean, what those guys have been through, what the Iraqis have been through just under Saddam through years of oppressive regimes. Horrifying. I met one guy who was a prisoner of war in Iran for eight years because of the Iran-Iraq war. I mean, what that man must have went through is unfathomable. And you could see he was psychologically clearly off, I guess, or scarred from that because I can't even fathom what he went And that through. was one of the biggest meat grinder wars ever the Iran-Iraq yeah. war, just 
horrifying. Yeah. Um, do you still find yourself looking at the feet of people not, in public? Not anymore. Uh, I've processed a lot of these things, but inevitably when I came back, I was a lot more vigilant, did not like crowds, hated going into New York City, uh, you know, did not like loud noises. Uh, now it's a lot more at peace with a lot of those things, but I definitely struggled with it for a bit when I got Share back. Share some more memories uh, from uh, your service and then we'll get into uh, sure. returning and yeah. PTSD and processing that. Yeah. I mean, you know, in Iraq, like, um, when I went, again, I wanted to, I went out there with the expectation that I probably will not come back. And the war wasn't what I, wasn't movies. It wasn't, you know, we didn't, we also went closer to the end. So we didn't get into all out firefights. Our biggest threat were the bombs. One vehicle in our company did get hit. Thankfully, nobody nobody died, but we had bombs. I mean, once in a while, people would shoot rounds off. And my job was also somewhat dangerous. Like I used to, my job, one of my jobs was to walk out in front of our vehicle convoys and look for improvised explosive devices before they could blow up our vehicles. Oh, wow. So anytime we got to a bridge or any sort of danger zone, me and one of the Marine would walk on the left and the right side to sweep the area for bombs. So, you know, obviously, if somebody's going to get blown up first... Guess who it would be, right? One of us. <laughs> right, and because so, a lot of them were remote-controlled, so it wouldn't matter whether or not something stepped on it. It was... It uh, was, yeah. So, I mean, at this point, we also had, we had vehicles, like our vehicle had a blocker thing, so they would mostly be wires because we could block remotes. Oh, radio well, I transmission. What it was called. Yeah, we could block radio. I think there was a name for it. I can't remember off the top of my head now, but our MRAPs, these big vehicles had that. So they, it would be wires. That's why we'd walk to sweep for wires. Oh, okay. And, but, but a lot of times they'd be in the distance or something like that, different things. So sometimes they might trigger under a bridge. So anything we perceived as a danger zone, we'd have to walk through that. And, you know, um, so but, I had, that was one of my jobs out there. But I mean, I remember I hated life out there. I hated the officers made us do sometimes stupid missions, but you had to do it. No questions asked. You know, and uh, I hated it, but I remember reading like Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl. Amazing book. Oh, transformational, right? And I came back to it in my recent struggles, which I was sharing with you, you know, we can talk about, but, you know, realizing that you can be in the worst situation in the shittiest conditions, but you get to control your attitude. You get to control what happens in your mind. So I, I still remember like a very trans, fundamental transition point in my deployment, and I can see it in my Iraq journals. Two months into the war, hated my life, and everything shifted in my journals after that point. You know, I realized that I had five months left on my deployment. I could bitch, whine, complain, or I could suck it up and find the best of it. And that's what I did. And, I, and by the end of it, I remember writing, I'm really going to miss this place when I go home because I started to find beauty in all of this experience and stop complaining about my expectations of it. You know, because part of me, again, wanted to, in some ways, as crazy as it may sound, wanted to die out there. Like I wanted to, I, I even wrote this in my journal. I remember reading it fairly recently. Like, I hope a bomb hits our vehicle today. Not because anybody, not because I want anybody else to die, but let something happen. Let me, let me get, you know, uh, let me get taken out. Let me, uh, wow. Yeah. It was, it was a crazy, I mean, I remember rereading it. This was a few months ago. I was opened up my journals and I was like, wow, I can't believe I wrote that shit. Yes. <laughs> that was shocking. You know? you know, as, as you're sharing that, I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, the difference in viewing our lives, the, the, the amount of satisfaction we get when we improvise with life versus trying to control our preconceived notion of where meaning is going to come from mm. is so vastly different. And when we do the the former, that's, to me, we are present because we're improvising with it. Whereas when we think we know how it's supposed, how the universe is supposed to expand, we're going to be disappointed, we're going to be frustrated, and it's all about us, and we're missing the present mm. moment. 
Um, oh, you put that, and yeah. that it, it sounds to me like that's what shifted in you in that moment was mm. you opened yourself up to whatever is going to happen is going to happen, but I'm going to react to it in a, in a way that isn't prepared in terms of attitude. Yeah. And just embrace what is, right? The, I mean, because again, there's beauty in that experience. There really is, like uh, as shocking as it may be, but anything can be a beautiful. I mean, Viktor Frankl talks about how even a concentration camp can be a beautiful experience and a powerful experience. Yeah, the, and there was beauty in that war the, the, uh, on the ground in it. Yeah, The moment that he shares in his book of a starving person in the concentration camp giving, giving their sole of crust of bread to somebody else. Uh, or the singing yeah. of a song. Yeah. And he references that quote, which is one of my favorites from Dostoevsky. He says, my greatest dread is that I won't be worthy of my sufferings. That quote, uh, you know, and Victor, and he talks about it in the context of that, about these guys who gave their last piece of bread. I mean, in like you're being tortured, you're cold, you're starving, and you give your last piece of bread to another human being, you know, like to be worthy if you're suffering in that way. Like, that's what helped me. I mean, it guided me throughout it. I reread that book just recently when I gone, went through my divorce, which we can talk more about. But yeah, just realizing that, look, I have to be worthy of the suffering too, you know? Mm -hmm. Life will throw things your way. It'll throw shit your way. And sometimes even if you does, doesn't, you seek out the suffering. Like, I seek out ultra marathons. I seek out, that's, a, that's something I'm choosing in service of my growth. But can you be worthy of that, you know? And just transformational. That part, I mean, you can see, it brings tears to my eyes every time about how can the human being do that? <laughs> It's beautiful. Yeah. So let's go back to Iraq. You give me some moments of yeah. sublime beauty after your attitude changed with your remaining five months. If you can remember any. Yeah, yeah. Um I think however the, tiny yeah I think the most beautiful moments were the camaraderie you share like the stupid conversations we have with the marines and you know I remember like uh, certain times they would be like rounds going off and marines are crazy people we're looking for it and we're laughing about how we're we're looking for these rounds uh getting I mean you're in these intense environments and here we are just joking and laughing about waiting to you know there was one one moment that stands out actually is we were me and my buddy we were at this kind of standing at this uh, uh checkpoint kind of thing and these vehicles were going past and this vehicle drove past and there was an Iraqi woman in the full like burqa just her eyes saying uh, and we're again keep in mind we're marines who haven't barely seen a woman and like or you know we're we're living with guys and that kind of thing and we see this Iraqi woman just the most gorgeous eyes and just stared and waved at us, and we were both like, oh my God, we're in love. <laughs> and we always joke, we're like, you know, he's married this time, he was like, I would do anything to go back to that Iraqi woman, forget about it. Yeah. You know, so, but there were this, this beautiful, simple moments. I mean, sometimes you're out on missions all day, all night, you're tired, you're exhausted. I have this picture of me and my friend sitting in this uh, abandoned train station in the middle of Iraq, middle of winter, so we're in full gear. I look like a homeless person, just dirty, covered, you know, and we're sitting there on my iPod watching like a Shakira music music video Shakira's my hips don't lie was <laughs> you know these little moments of finding just a smile in the adversity you know and laughing about stupid crazy conversations but I still have that picture of and it always brings a smile to my face of how we're sitting there covered in dirt and cold you know and looking at mm -hmm. my iPod watching Shakira 
And there were so many moments like that that, and even when we just had shit, sometimes we just had bullshit missions that we had to go do, and we had to go do them because you just you're told to do it, you do it. But you you just like you know you just really like a common marine phrase, embrace the suck. You know, you embrace the suck. <laughs> and and it's beautiful to be able to do that. It teaches you a lot. So yeah. hard, but yeah, it when is. you are able to yeah. to do that. And I, I think there's an element of having to not take reality personally yeah. to be able to embrace the suck. Yeah. That's one thing in Iraq I learned to compartmentalize. You know, compartmentalize your emotion. I mean, it's not super healthy in this world, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but it is a valuable skill to, to be able to compartmentalize that will. Because sometimes, you know, maybe you need to for, let's say you got a job and you got to get it done. You got to compartmentalize maybe the, the rest of the shit happening in your life to, to, to get X thing done, you know? And in Iraq, it was necessary. It obviously got carried away when I came back, like just shutting down emotions, shutting down feelings, all that kind of thing. But it was a useful skill in Iraq to compartmentalize everything and just be and just look like I, I still again like I remember reading my journal and it said that you know that I can't change I can't remember exactly how I wrote it I wish I had my journal but something along the lines of like I can't change what is and by not caring about what we're doing while we're doing it I'm happier so it was again compartmentalizing just whatever you know we have to do this we do it but like yeah one of the last talking about moments one of the last missions that we had to do thankfully it didn't go down we were supposed to go into this town that was one of the most dangerous parts of the AO AO's area of operations and we had to I, because I made a conscious effort to learn Arabic, I was gotten pretty good at it by the end of the deployment, was told I would be going into the town with Iraqi police and no interpreter. And going door, door to door, urban warfare is terrifying. It's extremely dangerous. Because think about it, you walk in a house, you somebody's don't standing need there. to convince us. Yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 it's terrifying. I've seen five seconds. I would get nervous playing a video game that involved. I almost urban shit my warfare. pants playing paintball one time. So you are, uh, you yeah. don't have to urban do any warfare convincing. It's scary. And going in with Iraqi police, not my Marines into a town that was notoriously dangerous, apparently known for its insurgents, with no interpreter. I was like, and we were had like, you know, a few weeks left in the deployment. Early on in the deployment, we want to get into firefights every day. You know, we just want shit to go down. When you're that close, you just want to go home. <laughs> you don't want to get shot. And I still remember like that thing. And I'm just like, I mean, my sergeant tried to get me out of it. And he tried to help me out, but it couldn't. And we were on the way to that mission. And like a huge storm hit and the mission was called off. Mm. And it was, again, I don't know what this all means, right? Just these moments that I don't know how it would have gone down, but I just remember being like, shit, I don't want to get killed a few weeks before going home, man. Because, <laughs> I mean, I, I, one, it's not I don't, not that I don't trust the Iraqi police, but they weren't as well trained for sure. Like we had one day where these clowns, the Iraqi police guy left his rifle somewhere and he comes up to me and he's like, I lost my rifle. Like out of all the things you're going to lose, you know? <laughs> wow. Like don't put your rifle hanging around somewhere. <laughs> so I'm like, damn it. So obviously not only am I not going with my Marines, but the, the mission was that the Marines would set up the outside perimeter and me and some Iraqis would go into the town door to door. And I was like, fuck, I'm going to get killed a few weeks before going home. And wow. and like literally on the way out there, it was storm hitters and it just got bad that we called it off. And I was like, oh. <laughs> thank God. Wow. <laughs> but you had kind of like, I was like, I just remember thinking that I don't want to get killed. But it was like, okay, I guess I got to go do what I got to do, you know. And did you ever have to take a life? I did not, thankfully. I was blessed that I did not. And it's one of those things that, you know, I could have and uh, like... And I would have legally gotten away with it because at this point in the war, if any life was taken, it was um, there was a sort of an in inquiry into it. And it did happen. An Iraqi was killed right outside our base by one of the guys on our post. And it turns out he was an innocent man. But 
the way he had come in, the, the guy followed the rules of engagement, like firing around in the ground, around in the vehicle, first to flare in the, up in the air, then around in the ground, around in the vehicle, and then finally you shoot the person. And so he, you know, nothing happened. It was in some ways, followed the, he followed the rules of engagement. And I had moments that I could have and I would have legally gotten away with it, but that's what's so terrifying about it, you know? If I didn't and that guy killed my Marines, I would have lived with that forever. So but you if have to I make did, that decision in, and, the, in yeah, the moment. And if that guy was innocent, I would have lived with that forever. And that's what makes it so freaking hard, you know? Like when I came back, I, saw, I would, or even before I left, I would see people like talking Marines had to kill somebody on a check post. And a lot of people talk trash, but I was like, you don't know what it's like to be on a check post where, I mean, I had a friend before I left, he shot a vehicle and he still talks about to this day, thankfully this young girl didn't die, but he saw the glass of that vehicle go into the face of this young girl. And this was a good Marine. He did not want to kill, uh, this was actually before my deployment, but he's a friend of mine. Uh, he did not want to kill anybody, but he talks about how he saw it and that face will live with him. But he didn't know. I mean, he didn't want to hurt that young girl. And thankfully she lived, but still seeing that glass in her face, you know, and it's a, it's a terrifying constant moment to make because you screw up and there's consequences either way, you know, because most of us, again, didn't want to kill somebody innocent and we absolutely did not want to. So thankfully I didn't have to. And uh, thankfully, I, I guess we all made the right call in all those moments that it didn't, you know, result in one of us being killed. So, so talk about your return. When I came back, I came back to my senior year of undergrad. So I come back to my reserve unit and I was gone, going back to college. And man, that was hard. Uh, you come back to college and college students whine about stupid things compared to <laughs> war. And to, now I'm not as judgmental, although I just sounded very judgmental <laughs> in the sense that I recognize, you know, it's not, we all have our own level of awareness. I can't expect them to have the level of awareness as me or somebody in Iraq who's gone yes. through hell. But at the time, it was like, this is like, what are these people know nothing about, you know? So I try to go back. I called. I was like, dude, just send me back to Iraq, send me back to Afghanistan. Just And again, I felt guilty for coming back from the war, you know? So I just wanted to go back. Um, didn't get my chance. And then after finishing undergrad, I had a year left on my contract, so I couldn't. My plan was to go wander, to go into either conflict zones as a photographer, as a freelance journalist, or to um, go be a mountain bum in the Himalayas. Again, I wanted to experience intensity, right? Like putting the life on the line, that intensity of life. But I had a year left on my contract uh, when I finished undergrad. So I was like, okay, I can't wander. Let me go get my master's. And I got it in journalism because the idea of going to conflict journalism and also because even in Iraq, I saw good things happening that we never saw. You know, we hear about the Abu Ghraib scandals, Marines doing awful things, people doing awful things, but they had opened a train station the first time in four years, opened up a marble factory, an asphalt plant, and there was no journalist to tell these stories, you know, mm -hmm. uh, how we were working together. I had Iraqis come up and tell me that I feel sorry Americans have to pay in blood for Iraqi freedom. And I'm not defending the war, don't get me wrong, but my point is that there were good things happening, and let's yeah. tell some of those stories. So I thought I'll go into journalism school, and... Uh, at that point, I met my uh, my wife at the time. So finally, I was like, all right, you know what? Let me get out and I'll find, if I'm going to put my life on the line, let me do it on my own terms. <laughs> uh, so, because again, there was a lot of bullshit that we had to just follow orders to do that I was tired of. So when I met my wife, I also thought, okay, let's move on. And um, then after finishing my grad school, I got a corporate job for a year and a half. And that, I hated it, but it provides some structure, right? Mm -hmm. So actually, I quit my corporate job. On, I, I knew exactly what day I would quit the day I signed up for that job <laughs> mm -hmm. because I had, I had planned to ski one month across Greenland, dragging 190 pounds sled for 350 miles. So all this time, I wasn't, I was drinking, but it was never, I was a functioning alcoholic. I was well paid at my job. I got a promotion two weeks before I quit, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, so I was a functioning alcoholic. It only got much worse years later. 
Did you ever take a life at the water cooler? Take a life at the water cooler? Shoot anybody at the at the water cooler at your at your corporate job? <laughs> oh, <laughs> I got you. That was you. just a really <laughs> awkward joke. Wouldn't that no, be, I got you. <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't that be ironic is that that's the person that that's makes weird. you snap? <laughs> well, I had moments, yeah. I, I did not like that, did not like it one bit. Everybody just seemed miserable in that job. Going to the cubicle thing, working in New York City. I mean, New York, you know, I, people sometimes would walk in on the trains, they like, look like zombies. And I was like, man, this, people don't seem so alive out here, you know? Yeah. And uh, not demonizing all of New York, obviously, but, <laughs> but, you know, and it was, so I, I hated it. I got a job because uh, to sort of, to, to not be a mountain bum when I met my wife. My crazy story, my wife was the first person in her entire family to not have an arranged marriage. So she had to sort of battle her family to, agree to meet me and so i had to look presentable and can't be like hey i'm a bum who climbs mountains right. in the himalayas <laughs> and is she of uh, indian descent as well she's indian as well she's okay. much more conservative indian like i said our family everybody had arranged marriages she was the first person to not uh, which is sad how it all turned out <laughs> which we'll talk about but uh, but yeah but so she she had to sort of fight her family for me so i was like okay let me look presentable for a little bit (laughs) before I, you know, go through the entrepreneurial path and that struggles and all that stuff, which I eventually did. But yeah. Give me some uh, moments of difficulty readjusting. Uh, Everything. I mean, I remember in college going to parties, you know, and uh, uh, almost always I would leave the party drunk and crying about my life back home. Well, that's just college. And that's <laughs> that's part of the college experience. Yeah, <laughs> makes sense. <laughs> that's what you do okay. after frat parties. <laughs> okay, kidding, obviously. No, yeah. but I, yeah, I got you. <laughs> um, but I would call my buddy, yeah, and just be like, "Dude, this sucks. Let's just go back." You know, uh, struggled again with crowds, even up to the point when I got that job. Hated going to New York City. Hated the crowds. Struggled with loud noises. Never really saw it all as a problem. Problem, you know. Still navigating it. So minimized and the fact yeah. that you had. Yeah. You know, I mean, even like when I uh, when I used to drink, I wasn't the guy drinking every morning, every day. But when I did drink, I would drink hard. You know, that was me. And uh, but it was like, oh, I'm just a college student. That's what we do. We've been drinking in college. You party hard, whatever, right? And yeah. I was a fun party guy, you know. So I had great parties uh, and all that stuff. But it, but I mean, I, I had stopped watching war movies. And when I did, like, I still remember in in grad school, the TV show Pacific came out, uh, the hot HBO show Pacific. And I was like, I have to watch it. The Marines in the Pacific. My unit served in Iwo Jima. I have to. It's an intense. Oh my show god. Too. I would be broken down after every episode watching it. My uh, my girlfriend, uh, who became my wife at the time, was like, why are you doing this? And it was like, and then I would drink to shut it all out, you know, the guilt, which I never really engaged till years later. If again, the survivor's guilt, the feeling of the feelings of guilt, it all was just buried. Why do you think you, you did watch it? Were you looking for some type of catharsis or perspective, some type of clarity that would bring you peace? Most, more often than not, back then I avoided watching movies because I knew it sent me into dark spaces, um, and it would often lead to heavy drinking binges. But that show, because again, maybe my unit served, and there was like a, it's the Marines, these are my brothers, and I had to, and there was, now I'm much more conscious, there was a beauty about engaging that kind of pain, of in, of delving into the depths of that intensity. Like today, I watch war movies from time to time, knowing they will make me cry, and they do. They break me down every time I watch it, but there is such a power to the intensity of that experience. And, and back then, I don't think I was consciously doing it in the way that I am now, but I think something in me was seeking that out, you know? 
What, what movies have touched you the most deeply? Recently, Hacksaw Ridge. Yeah. That, that movie helped me find faith. Uh, tore me up again, of course, but that, uh, that movie was, uh, so powerful. And that was that where story. conscientious objector went and became a medic. He became a medic in World War II, single-handedly rescued over 75 people off a cliff, dragging them sometimes as far as a football field. And in the Marine training, we had to drag like a human being from, you know, just a few yards and it was hard. He single-handedly dragged 75 people, sometimes as far as a football field, and then lowered them off a cliff. And after each one, he would say, please God, help me save one more. And what he did was just impossible. Like what he did was just that divinity that we have within us to rise above ourselves in service of something beautiful. And it just touched my soul. That courage again, because that's the, what draws me to war is not the horrors, but the, that, like the, the beauty of the human experience. I watch scenes from Black Hawk Down. In fact, before I do these interviews, like in the car coming over, I listen to this clip from Black Hawk Down at the end of the movie where he says, you know, when I go back home, people ask me why I do it. And he says, they'll never understand, but it's about the men next to you. So I do it before I do. I listen to clips like that before I tell talks, before I do interviews to remind me that it's not about me. If I'm here, it's in service of somebody listening. That's why I've been gifted this life now that in many ways I feel I shouldn't be here. So it's my responsibility not to waste it downing liters of vodka like I did from for a long time, you know. Um, so, yeah, those movies trigger me. Hacksaw Ridge, uh, thank you for your service. That one tore me up because very similar story. That guy, a junior Marine, shot himself in the head. He felt like he should have been in a seat of a guy who got killed. And, oh, man, that one just tore me up, too. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So it it sounds as if the there's always been a search, the title of Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. Yeah. Um, and connection. Yeah. And being valued is that is that fair that that um i don't know don't let me don't let me put words in your mouth i'm just i'm i'm always curious to know what the thoughts or emotions are that are driving our behavior i understand of course yeah you know i think um today it's not being valued in the way it was like with the drugs like look oh look at me right it's being valued to my internal self to the divinity within to the divinity that we collectively have but really realizing that this is no longer just mine this life it has to be in service of something greater you know like there's this great book called uh, when bad things happen to good people mm-hmm. have you yeah powerful book uh written by this rabbi and he talks about how when we lose people we can let those debts drive us into the darkest corners of our soul and we, you know, we lose people care about and then we start drinking and we lose ourselves in that. And then by doing that, what we're making their debts is we're making them what he calls the devil's martyrs or we can make them God's martyrs, whatever your perspective on God is, right? And now I realize that, yes, I've lost people. I've lost two friends to drug addiction, lost friends to addiction after that, to suicide and war. And it's I can sit there and bitch and drink myself stupid. What I'm doing is dishonoring my friend Neil's death. You know, I'm dishonoring everybody who's uh, who's lost something, and even myself. And it's up to me to make that God to make him God's martyr, to make all of uh, the, the ones we've lost, the sacrifice that we collectively as human beings make God's martyrs. That now it has to be in service of something. So value to myself and value in service of something. You know. So um, you know, example of of that reaction would be uh, parents that lose their child to drug addiction that then start a foundation exactly. to raise money yeah. to bring awareness and absolutely have 
halfway houses yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. Obviously, it's never easy, but that that suffering can be channeled into something beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, talk about recovering, um, dealing with the PTSD, getting mm-hmm. treatment for mm-hmm. it. Um, was there a bottom you hit that made you... Yeah. So when we, uh, you know, after I quit my job, started my own business, then, then, then it started to hit even more because now there's no structure, right? The entrepreneurial thing, you have to create your own structure. As a result, you're forced to confront yourself a little bit more when there's no structure externally imposed upon you. And, uh, and then my wife and I started having some problems. I mean, to be very vulnerable about it, physical problems. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't physically anything wrong with me. We kind of recognized there was something probably psychological. So she finally said, why don't you go talk to somebody? So I went to the VA therapist. That's when I was diagnosed. Started getting some therapy, but, and I don't criticize the VA therapist. I think they were beautiful people, great human beings. In hindsight now, in all my research, I recognize that they were just operating from a, sort of a bla- bad playbook on how to heal the human psyche. Uh, but it often sent me into darker places. And I mean, I got to a point that I would drink like a liter of vodka a day. I would drink, pass out, wake up, drink, pass out, and this sometimes would go on for five days. Wow. And then I'd sober up because I'd be in like such a disaster, you know, or three days or whatever, and uh, three to five days of this. And then, okay, let me get back to the thing. And then these cycle of drinking and sobering up. And then one time after finally like five days of this, I remember waking up and just thinking to walking over to the kitchen, taking a knife and ending it all because I thought this pattern would never end. So I was like, fuck it. What am I doing? There's no point going on. And that was a low moment to say the least. I mean, it shocked me that I would even think about taking my own life. I, I, I couldn't believe that I would I had gotten that low, you know? And that was really a trigger that said, all right, something needs to change. So that's when I started delving into books into personal development work, reading, I mean, I'm at hundreds of books, neuroscience, psychology, spirituality, understanding what is it, what's happening here? What can I do to heal this, you know? And uh, beyond just healing myself, it led me on a far deeper and more valuable journey to figure out how do we all navigate this experience of suffering in life and transform it into bliss, you know? And so was there any um, seeking out EMDR or anything like that? Or was it just you... uh, Focusing your energy into uh, trying to understand what what happened, or finding a way of living that brought about some type of peace. Yeah, it was just understanding the the psyche, understanding what was happening with me, understanding the nature of how the brain works. You know, like as an example, you know, we. Um, I, I had, again, struggle with loud noises, struggle with crowds, and these were symptoms that they said were symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. But in all my research, I came to learn that the symptoms of post-traumatic stress are not indicative of a disorder. Just because I was jumpy when there's loud noises, just because I didn't like crowds, just because I struggled with survivor's guilt, it didn't mean there was a disorder. That's a normal human response to war. You know, neuroscience and spirituality have both shown that we don't control most of what happens in our brain. It's happening in the subconscious. So if I'm standing on the edge of a cliff and I feel fear, if somebody walks in the room right now with a gun and we feel fear... I'm not controlling that fear. That's a normal human response to that experience, right? My brain learned to say loud noises equals death for seven months in a very intense environment. Obviously, I was jumpy. It didn't mean there was a disorder. So what I came to do was I came to learn to separate myself from these experience of these thought patterns that were beyond my control, these emotional patterns, these uh, uh, subconscious reactions and patterns, and say that I can be something more. And I don't, I don't believe that there's a self to find. I believe there's a self to create. And I was like, okay, I'm not these things that I'm not, I don't have post-traumatic. That's why I always say I was diagnosed with PTSD, not that I have PTSD because I had post-traumatic stress, but I don't think it was a disorder. It was a normal human response to war. I mean, and survivor's guilt is not just a veteran thing. Anybody who loses somebody will often, they love will question, right. why me? 
I mean, why am I alive? Why, why not? Why did they deserve to die? Right? right. It's a normal human response to love. So, so that, that experience of post-traumatic stress, that experience of fear, of guilt is an expression of love. And I learned to accept that, learn to accept that I don't control all these things. You know, as human beings, we think we have free will. We're autonomous beings, but we have far less free will than we like to think we do. We're just creatures of our patterns. But when we acknowledge that we are, we can rise above it. There's a fantastic quote that really summarizes that. This guy, P.D. Uspensky, who wrote this book, The Psychology of Man's Possible Evolution. He says, man is a machine, but a very peculiar kind of machine. He's a machine that when he recognizes he is a machine can cease to be a machine. So the beauty in that is when we recognize that we, when we accept the limit, the limited amount of our free will, that's when we can rise above that to regain consciousness. I could not agree more. Yeah. Being able to identify where we are powerless in our lives yeah. and the need to surrender to it doesn't mean yeah. we have to like it or approve of it, but you know, to me, traffic is a great example of it. Getting angry at traffic is a form of temporary insanity because we, do it, it does, putting yourself in a bad mood, um, over something you can't control and taking it personally is a brutal way to go through your life. It's so much added stress. It, it, you know, using it as an opportunity to call friends or listen to a favorite album or a podcast called The Mental <laughs> Illness Happy Hour. Those, yeah. I had to learn that those were the ways to react to the fact that I can't control that. Yeah. And then to try to bring principles to the things I can control. And it's almost like a, a, a triage of where do I file mm. this moment? Is this a surrender moment or is this a bring some principles to bear like moment? That. And and to deal with whatever fear I have, if there are, if I do have some semblance of control or influence in, yeah. that, in that moment. And many times I, I don't, I fall short of that. Um, but the pursuit of that brings me peace and a sense of meaning and it makes my life easier. Yeah. 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 I like the way you put that, doing triage. <laughs> yes. So beautiful. what was your experience as you as you began to use these yeah. as, as opportunities? You know, as I started to recognize, as I started to figure this out, sort of accept what is, then what I came to realize is that, okay, now I'm out of this. There's Again, I don't think there's a self-defined, right? So, okay, then who do I want to be? Who is the self that I want to create for myself and for others? And that's where I, that's where, I mean, like, again, Victor Frankl talks about a man's search for meaning. You know, he says there's three ways to find meaning in the deep human connection, finding meaning in our suffering, because you can't control that when life throws it your way. And the third is the pursuit of a purpose. I call it your worthy struggle. What is your worthy struggle? Because I call it a worthy struggle because I don't like the term passion often, especially with younger kids. They often hear if you follow your passion, you know, life will be the sunshine and magical rainbows and unicorns. And we all know it won't be, right? It's going to be a brutal road, but that's not a bad thing. The struggle can be beautiful. Mm -hmm. So realizing that I got to consume myself in this worthy struggle. And that's what led me to then saying, okay, writing this book, you know, writing the, creating this concept of fear vana, mm -hmm. the idea that fear and stress and struggle and guilt, however it all shows up, adversity can be an access point to enlightenment, not the other way around, but we demonize these things. We hear people say, be fearless, don't be scared. How many times do we feel to don't stress out, don't worry? You know, we add words like a disorder to anxiety and stress. We're always telling people, don't feel what you're feeling. Like everybody said, don't feel guilty. And again, rationally, I get it. I get that I could have gone to war with him and he would have still died. But it's not going to change my emotional response as someone who loved my brother, you know? So 
we, we're always telling people don't feel what you're feeling. Instead, realizing accept what you're feeling in any emotion right. can be useful. There's no bad or good. Despite our labeling of an emotion as bad or good, there's no bad or good emotions. No, just there's healthy, just emotions. And healthy or unhealthy ways of expressing exactly. it. Exactly. And it's like that person telling you you're not stuck in rush hour traffic. Yeah. <laughs> no, I yeah. am. It's <laughs> how should I react exactly. to this, or exactly. what are my options for reaction? Exactly, and, and that's what's so flawed, though. Like, I mean, sorry to interrupt, but it just fires me up because I see people. I see how destructive it can be. Like, one of my veteran buddies went to the therapist, and the therapist kept saying, "Anger is a choice. Stop feeling angry. Stop feeling angry." And seven years after the war, to him, it was no longer a choice. It was a pattern he could not control. So when he came to me, I said, "Right now, it's not a choice, man. You've just built this pattern. Your job is not to fight the anger and resist it when it shows up. It's just to accept and." notice it yes. and he called me at 1 a.m i remember first time in seven years since the war he had able to not let his anger consume him because every time like his kid broke something he'd flip out you know break the lawnmower break the dvd player and by saying that okay it's not a choice anymore in time the, you can the, change the, what first shows up the, the feeling of anger is not a choice yes exactly i believe, I believe no feeling is it is, is, is a choice but how we, we express it exactly is, is exactly is a choice exactly yeah. i still wrestle with guilt but to this day, I have a picture of my friend up on my wall, and it says, this should have been you. Earn this life. And sometimes I have two pictures now where I – the same picture of my friend, but it, it doesn't say this should have been you. Earn this life. It says, honor his death. Live his life. And they both serve me when I need it. Sometimes I need to hold on to that guilt because it it's, helps me do what I need to do. It helps me get out of darkness, you know, because it reminds me that – that it's not on me to drown my sorrows in my own bullshit, in my mm -hmm. own suffering. It's on me to rise above it. And he is to make him that, like I said, God's martyr, right? Okay. Uh, other times, it's, it drives me to say, honor his death, live his life, as opposed to that feeling of guilt. But I'm able to consciously say, what do I need when I need it, you know? Right. As, as you're sharing these things, there, you know, there's so much nobility in the attitude that you've adopted and the life that you're living and trying to live, I have a, I have a concern for you that you won't allow yourself to ever just be and not do anything and be okay with that. Um, I I fully un understand your concern. It's funny you mentioned that. The greatest fear that I have today that I'm navigating is stillness, yeah. is acknowledging the stillness of just being, of uh, being still with what is, being in that space of silence. It's something I'm much more consciously and proactively engaging, but God knows it's still terrifying. It's hard. <laughs> it's very hard. It's one of the hardest things to yeah. get to because the chatter... Yeah. And our brain yeah. is so anti-stillness. Yeah, absolutely. Think, 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 yeah. think, 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 think. And your thoughts think, go think, think, everywhere. Think. And we're always running away through sometimes drugs, alcohol, through our phones, through watching TV, sometimes through work, sometimes through, you know, in sometimes positive, quote unquote, ways, sometimes negative. But if we just be like this great exercise I learned from this endurance cyclist friend of mine, he did this race across America. It's one of the toughest endurance cyclist races in the world, like 10 days of cycling and 10 hours of sleep total. One of the things he used to do to train for it, he would sit still, stare into a wall. No, obviously no TV music, but not even a painting. So literally no stimuli to engage the consciousness, just an empty wall. And he would do it for up to 12 to 24 hours and then go riding for that same amount of time. And just being still with your thoughts. I've started to practice it. I haven't done it for nearly that long yet. But it's terrifying and beautiful at the same time because you 
get to see what shows up. Like today, I recognize by engaging stillness that often what I did in the past, like when I mentioned right after quitting my job, I spent a month, you know, skiing across Greenland, dragging this 190 pound sled for 350 miles. I would do the same, similar things today. Like I climb mountains, I long distance run. But back then I was doing it to run away from my demons. Gotcha. I was just, even though they were positive, like those things mm-hmm. were, I was lauded for it. I was praised for it. I got invited to talk for it. But I was still running away from my demons. I wanted to go to the extremes of, human, to the, of life, you know? Right. And I was running away. Today I do these things that I do. I still run uh, long distance. I still want to climb mountains. I still have some adventures that I want to do. But very different level of consciousness. It's not to run away from those demons anymore because we were talking about it earlier, embracing the shadows. Like one of the most beautiful things I've come to learn very recently is that there are all these dualities in life. You know? Oh my God, it's and just... the acceptance of yes. both sides of the duality are what allows us to reach that next spiritual awakening. Like there's the demons and the divinity. Even with ego, right? Ego and humility can coexist because if I want to do great things in the world, a part of me has to believe I'm great. And athletes are a great example of this. Mm-hmm. Like Muhammad Ali will tell the world, I'm the greatest boxer in the world. But athletes also have a relentless humility to always be learners, to always seek the next uh, how to evolve. So I think ego and humility can coexist. Like compartmentalization and full expression can coexist. Our demons and our divinity can coexist. And I think that they must coexist. Like fear and nirvana, two seemingly contradictory ideas. But when you align the dualities, when you align the seemingly opposite forces as one, you rise into something so much greater. And that's what stillness allows you to tap into. It allows me to find my demons and find my divinity. And I think another way to do it is through stillness and suffering. When you push yourself to the edge, like that's why I love long distance running. Oh man, I go through moments of just pure hell, right? But I tap into these inner demons and through those demons there's this beautiful dance of this duality of my ego of the humility my ego will say i can rise i'm strong my humility will show how little i am into the level of pain and but they 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 coexist in this dance and it's the same thing with the demons and the divinity yeah it's it's like the valley is part of the definition of the climb up the mountain yeah it's if you didn't experience the valley you wouldn't truly appreciate the slog up the mountain if they helicoptered you to a thousand feet below the summit it's not the same experience. Absolutely. And, um, there's a saying in my support groups that um, you to truly experience heaven, you have to have experienced hell. Mm. And I, I believe that. And embracing that, I love your idea of embracing that cognitive dissonance um, because that is reality. Yeah. Is that sometimes there is no quote unquote truth. There's just this huge scope of what is and we don't have to be able to understand it why it is or think that there is some perfect way to react to something um sometimes just accepting and embracing the confusion and fogginess yeah of life is the perfect way to d- to deal with things imperfectly. Absolutely. I mean, what you put is beautifully, like, it's totally true. Like, I kind of realize that, like, true inner peace is not the elimination of chaos. It's the acceptance of the chaos. Yes. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Your book is called Fearvana. And uh, I imagine it touches on a lot of these mm-hmm. topics mm-hmm. and the neuroscience that you yeah. did research on and your own personal experience of mm-hmm. embracing suffering. Um 
and you, the foreword is by the Dalai fucking Lama. <laughs> That's really how he should sign his name because everybody always keeps a, you know, a copy of that letter and it should just to make people laugh. It just to say the Dalai fucking <laughs> Lama. <laughs> that is so awesome, man. A huge blessing. I mean, is there Absolutely. a better forward to a book than right? the Dalai Lama? Could not ask for something. I hate you. <laughs> I fucking hate you. <laughs> Oh, kudos on that, <laughs> Thank man. you. It was just a huge blessing. I mean, I still, it's still very surreal to have that happen. I didn't even ask for a forward. I just asked for a one-liner, and he never gave me a forward with this beautiful letter that we framed and put up in our, you know, put up in a wall with his signature and his seal. Just yes. really humbling and just an absolute was, blessing. He was into what you were um, preaching in your in your book, what you were sharing, the I, information and experience. Yeah, because that's the great, that's the thing, right? Like, we're all suffering in some way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, recently... And yeah, it's was, not a contest. It's not. Yeah, but that's a great point. I love that you bring that up because we often compare our suffering to others, right? He's suffering more, I'm suffering, you know, and that... But it's the experience is the experience. I mean, we see people who objectively seem to have everything suffer more than... Some people who seem to have objectively nothing, right? Like right. the celebrity world, and I will see people struggle more than a person I've seen on the streets of India who seemingly has nothing, right? So it's not a contest. We all have our own battles and accepting those battles and navigating that experience of suffering is fundamental. And I think a lot of what we do is approaching Iran. I mean, collectively as humanity, we're always trying to make our lives easier. We're creating these new pieces of technology to make our lives easier. And what we're failing to recognize is easier is not better. It's in the acceptance of struggle. It's in the embracing of struggle. That's why I call it your worthy struggle. Because one way or the other, you're going to struggle. But the question is, which struggle do you want to seek out in service of who you are and who you want to be? What is your worthy struggle? You know, could be hosting a podcast, writing a book, writing movies, playing chess, whatever it may be. But that is it. You know, and, and the struggle is inevitable part of the journey, but it's such a beautiful part. And not to look for that easy way out. We're causing people more problems. So that's why I feel blessed that hopefully, you know, that maybe the doc, because Buddhism says, you know, that life is suffering that we all go through. And Dalai Lama, uh, I feel blessed that he acknowledged that because hopefully this is a version, this is helping people, the concept of Firvana, a new word to help people reframe their relationship because words have a lot of power, right? Mm-hmm. And to reframe their relationship to these so-called negative emotions and say, no, it's, it's, they all coexist as one and we can be something through the struggle and through the play, through the lightness, right? Like suffering and bliss can coexist. It's the duality mm-hmm. of, of, of one, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, dude, thank you so much for uh, coming by and uh, sharing all this Thank you all so much stuff. for having me, man. It was a pleasure. Uh, we'll put links to all your stuff up on the, the website. Is there anything that, that you want to share out loud that somebody would be able to remember? Um, a link or uh, like yeah, where, where uh, can people follow you on Twitter? Fearvana.com. Uh, Fearvana is most of my social handles. And uh, I mean, all the book proceeds are going to charity. So, you know, 100% of the profits. So we're supporting some really good causes. Right now, we're helping to build the first sustainable school in post-war Liberia, which I'm also running 210 miles to support. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so just Fearvana and supporting the book, sharing it, because I think it'll make a difference. Yeah, and you, you can't make it 220 miles? <laughs> right? very, you, you disappoint me. You disappoint me. <laughs> Dude, thank you so much. Thanks, brother. Oh, if I could just have one-tenth of his, uh, his energy. He is doing well. He is... Um, busy, 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 helping people all over the place. Um, And yes, he sends his best. Before we get to some surveys, I want to give uh, some love out to our sponsor, Calm. 
Calm is the number one app for sleep, meditation, and relaxation. It was named App of the Year last year by Apple. Uh, there's nothing worse than not being able to fall asleep and yet also being exhausted. And if you go to calm.com slash mental, you can get 25% off a Calm premium subscription, which includes hundreds of hours of premium programs, including sleep stories. They're essentially bedtime tales for grownups designed to quiet the mind, relax the body, um, all kinds of good stuff. You can also get access to guided meditations on topics like anxiety, stress, and sleep, soothing music, and more. So for a limited time, uh, you guys can get 25% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash mental. That's C-A-L-M dot com slash mental. And it includes unlimited access to all of Calm's amazing content that you will, that will have you drifting off to dreamland in no time. Uh, I'm the conductor of dreamland. I don't know if you guys know that, but I run a little choo-choo in dreamland. And for some reason, uh, I wear genie slippers because I get uh, my fantasies and my dreams mixed up. So get started today at calm.com slash mental. Then get to sleep. Want to also give uh, a shout out to our uh, other sponsor, um, Policy Genius. Nobody likes to talk about life insurance, and uh, nobody likes to think about all the shit that's involved in life insurance. But Policy Genius is an easy way to get life insurance. In minutes, you can compare quotes from top insurers to find the coverage you need at a price you can afford. And from there, you can apply online, and the unbiased advisors at Policy Genius will handle all the red tape. And Policy Genius doesn't just make life insurance easy. So whether you're shopping for disability insurance to protect your income or homeowner's insurance or auto insurance, they can they can help you get covered fast. Um, I've been to their website. It's just perfectly laid out, super intuitive, easy to navigate, and all the things where you would be like, well, what, what do I, how do I check this box? They explain it and they make it really easy to navigate. They take all the, the agony out of, uh, that process. So I recommend it. Uh, so if you've been intimidated or frustrated by insurance in the past, give Policy Genius a try. Just go to policygenius.com to get your quotes and apply in minutes. You can do the whole thing on your phone right now. Policy Genius, the easy way to compare and buy life insurance. Let us get to some uh, some surveys. This is a body shame survey filled out by a woman who calls herself 23 and milk isn't going to help, mom. Um, what do you like or dislike about your body? My breasts and my stomach. I was a late bloomer and have always had very small breasts. Uh, by the way, just always assume that if they don't say they like or dislike it, they're talking about what they dislike. Uh, my breasts and my stomach. I was a late bloomer and have always had very small breasts. Even now, I am a 32B cup, but my mother always made offhand comments and remarks about them, would whisper loudly to me about them in front of my father and drill me every so often, wondering if I had been drinking milk, then blamed for no progress being made. You know, it, it, the the un, unattainable beauty ideals that we foist onto women and some men, but mostly uh, men or uh, women in our society. Um, there are so many culprits for it, but the one I, that has really surprised me doing this show is the stuff coming from 
the parents and especially the mothers just kind of putting putting the sick negative voice they have in their brain just passing that down like a like a bad heirloom uh now that I'm in no contact with my family and I'm learning a ton more about body dysmorphia, I realized how normal my body is. I'd always operated under the idea that my body was, quote, unnatural and not quite there yet and deformed. The truth is, yeah, maybe it's not the exact same shit you see everywhere else, but the multitudes of random genes combining to make different people resulted in everyone being slightly different. So what if they're different enough to notice? Now I follow the dogma of that one grand grandparent you see in the locker rooms at the Y? Just let it hang, man. Who cares? Brains and ball sacks look like walnuts. Sometimes your areola is bigger than your breast and the rooster crows in the morning. You had me at brains and ball sacks. <laughs> brains and ball sacks was the name of my first solo album after I left the band Tits and Toes. And a lot of people thought that it was a little derivative, but I'm like, how can I be derivative of something that I was just in. And uh, what does rooster crows in the morning mean? Does that mean, uh, is that like a reference to morning wood or something? But I love this survey. I love that you have distanced yourself from that sickness and that negative thinking. And it is the greatest vacation you will ever take. When you begin to distance yourself from people that just are spewing the stuff that they haven't separated themselves from yet. Because it's like, in a sick way, I think those parents, they're trying to help. They think they're protecting their child, you know. They're inspiring them to change or do something. But um, it's just so fucked up. It's so fucked up. And uh, high five for you loving your body the way it is. And... I am personally a fan of like going to a place uh, like in Croatia. I, I think I shared this on the podcast. I went to a place that was a uh, clothing optional beach. And the culture in uh, Croatia, pretty much Europe, but especially Croatia, um, is very um, body friendly. And you, when you're on a beach with, you know, 300 people, you're going to see a body type, every type of body. And after a while, you, I don't know, I find that I just stop worrying about what I look like. And there's something really nice when everybody is naked. It, it's, and, and assuming that it's a healthy environment and it doesn't have some, you know, unhealthy vibe to it. Um, it's so democratic because nobody is showing off their wealth. Um, there's nothing to hide behind. And when, when there's nothing to hide behind, I don't know. It's, it's kind of like the, you have to face that fear. And then you suddenly realize that that fear is really just a, a, a mirage, a phantom. Is that the right word? Zafad, I think I'm pronouncing his name right, uh, writes, I, I have a recessed chin, small lower jaw, and messed up teeth. Small but high cheekbones that highlight the eye area, making it more, more like bags from tiredness. I'm currently, by the way, my second grade picture 
I started having bags under my eyes. That's not good. I'm currently on a waiting list for corrective surgery in which they will break my face in six places and move it around, also while fitting me with braces. I feel like this has made my life hell because it makes me look ugly. I suffer from anxiety and depression due to being treated badly by people for my looks, though anytime I bring it up with either friends or a therapist, they deny a problem ever exists or ever existed. The only people that acknowledge it are the shitty bullies and my amazing dentist. I've made great progress in my mental health issues, but until I step over this hurdle, I don't feel like I will make any more progress. How you look can affect your life massively, unfortunately. Thank you for sharing that. And I think people forget um, that men can be really wrapped up in their um, body dysmorphia or, um, you know, anxiety about things. I'm not saying he had dysmorphia, um, but I guess what I'm trying to say is we have feelings too. This is a shame and secret survey, and thank you for sh- for uh, sharing that, and I, and I hope that... Um, You make progress in finding peace with um, your body and how you look and how you feel about yourself. Life is too short to hate the body we are stuck with. It just is. But boy, is that easier said than done. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself uh, U-H-H-H. She is, uh, identifies as queer uh, in her 30s was raised in a totally chaotic environment, uh, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. A Tinder date showed up in my dorm room, pushed me down, and raped me. I'm so sorry you had to experience that. Um, She's also been physically and emotionally abused. I do not have any emotions about it anymore. I have basically shut down all emotional feelings about it and talk about it like it's everyday conversation. Any positive experiences with abusers? Yeah, the abusers were my parents uh, while they were on drugs. They aren't bad people, so we have a lot of fun together when we or they aren't fighting. Darkest thoughts. Uh, My sister raped me when I was younger, and sometimes I wonder if that is why I like women. It makes me feel guilty for trying to blame my queerness on a specific event. Darkest secrets. I've tried to kill myself seven separate times in three years. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Being owned or owning someone. It makes me feel powerful. What, if anything, do you wish for? For someone to love me, my excessive facial hair, my mental illness, and everything else. Someone to love and support me for who I am. And a lifetime supply of queso. I cannot disagree with that. here's Here's a phrase you will never hear. Ah, but there's too much cheese. I don't know if I've ever heard. Once I had a pizza that had too much cheese on it. And it was a white pizza, which um, is just... White pizzas are kind of the Italian version of frosted Pop-Tarts. That's just a big question mark. Just a big why. Why would you do that? Um, have you shared these things with others? Yes, once, and he never spoke to me again. How do you feel after writing this down? Confused. Well, I want to send you a hug because it sounds like you are in a lot of pain and 
and your brain is spinning and there's nothing I can say that will make any of those feelings different. Um, but you're not invisible. And I think probably just about everybody listening is like me and they just want to give you a hug and tell you that you're not alone. This was filled out by Tats Done One and he writes, uh, what do you like or dislike about your body? Some of the tattoos I've got. Also, I usually feel too skinny, not manly enough, too effeminate. Legs are too skinny. Um, thank you for sharing that. I hate the look of my legs below my knees. I like how my thighs look. I have muscular thighs from playing hockey. And below my knees, it looks like somebody swapped me out with a chicken. And so if I wear shorts that go to the knee, um, I just, yeah, I look like a chicken that ate too much. <laughs> um, but thank you for, for, for sharing that uh, and then he says, I used to love watching you on dinner in a movie on TBS. There was something inexplicably enjoyable about being able to bounce between the world of the movie and the lighthearted, goofy world of cooking with Paul and your co-host. I can't remember her name. Um, the first one was Annabelle. The second one was Lisa. And the third one was Janet. And Claude was the chef. Um, and I talked to all of them today. Not today, today, but, you know. What do I mean? We still talk. Um, you were hilarious and I always wanted to be funny and at ease like you were. Well, I may have been funny, but at ease was a big fucking show. I can tell you that much because inside my stomach was churning and I had to drink myself to sleep um, because I was so worried about what everybody thought. And it wasn't until I had been sober for a couple of years that I began to kind of relax a little bit more and realize that everybody's thinking about themselves. You know, the majority of people that we think are judging us are just so busy judging themselves. There isn't time to judge other people. Uh, this is filled out by Depressed in Shameland. And she writes, I used I never used to think much about my body when I was younger, like six or seven. I was proud to run around and just be myself, but then I don't know when it happened. I just started hating myself bit by bit. Nowadays, when I look in the mirror, I just want to chop off my arms and legs and back and just be a head that creeps everyone out and then disappears into a pool of self-loathing and straight-up existential nothingness and fuckery. That might be my favorite sentence of the year. Let's read that again. When I look in the mirror, I just want to chop off my arms and legs and back. I hear, I hear a lot, the arms and legs, but the back. You also go for the back. And just be a head that creeps everyone out and then disappears into a pool of self-loathing and straight-up existential nothingness and fuckery. I don't know what I would do if just a head came into the room. I don't know. What do you say if somebody comes in and they're they're just ahead? 
Do you do something to your hair? Do you lose weight? Uh, it's crazy, though, because I am always horny, but whenever I think about doing remotely anything about it, whether by myself or with someone else, I get so repulsed, I want to cut deeper than I ever have. I think it would be good to talk to a therapist about this because it it's, you know, I I love how you're able to kind of make light in the way you express this, but obviously there there's a lot of... Um, pain underneath this and you deserve to feel better and there's so much help out there whether it's a support group or therapy or a trusted friend that anyway this is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself lonely liar she is straight in her 20s was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment was the victim of sexual abuse uh, or some stuff happened, but she doesn't know if it counts uh, and she doesn't uh, elaborate. She's been physically and emotionally abused. My mom has neglected her children her entire life. Uh, My father has BPD and was never treated for it due to his religion. Most of my life was spent being told that I was bad and for years got a daily spanking. I would try to run, but mom and dad made the older two hold my arms and legs down. This is horrific, but I have to add it because it's morbidly funny. The paddle that they beat me with was wooden with a big red heart that read, Jesus loves you. At least I can laugh about how fucked up that is. Uh, Any positive experiences? Uh, I am in weekly therapy right now learning how to confront my mom because I am just not ready. It is a process, man. It is a process. Darkest thoughts. I am not suicidal at all. If I was, uh, if I was, I was admit my. If I was, I would admit myself to the hospital. But I fantasize all the time about crashing my car into walls and trees because I want to feel something crushing my body. I, of course, will not do this. Intrusive thoughts are just very vivid for me. Darkest secrets. For the past three years, I have been emotionally catfishing people online that I meet in support group chat rooms. My area has no support groups other than uh, uh, NA, and it is more for convicted felons with court orders. So I started searching online for help. I would go in, share my true story, what I was going through, and was ignored. Uh, in every chat room, I was ignored. So I started going in as another person named Lily. I make up things about Lily that are awful, like some sort of disability or intense family issues. This was the only way I could get people to talk to me. So I still do it. It's wrong to be a liar, but I don't know how to be okay without it. I will be alone. That must be incredibly uh, painful to be putting your stuff out there and feeling like you're being ignored um, or in reality being ignored. Um, My suggestion, instead of changing your story, is change the people that you share your story with and just keep searching. Um, I don't know if you have gone to uh, intherooms.com, but I'm told um, that can be a good place. Um, But there's not going to be any kind of healthy growth or relief from what you're doing. It might be exciting, but 
It's going to keep you stuck. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I have not nor will ever share this sexual fantasy, but the most powerful one is having an older woman hold me to her breasts and treat me like a small child. The need for this was so strong once I thought about finding a reason to fly to Vegas where prostitution is legal and paying for a good solid four hours for just that, patting and rubbing my back, holding me to her breasts and telling me that I am safe. That is so touching. That's so, um, I don't know why that you would be, I do know why you would be ashamed of that because I'm the same way with the things that, that I want. When I want comfort, I, I often feel silly or needy or ridiculous, but the pain that is underneath this is so valid and the way that you want to get that is so um, just, you're just putting it out there without malice or um, anything. It's kind of the opposite of, of what you're doing in the support rooms. And I'm not a sex therapist. I'm not a therapist. But I would maybe talk to one and that might be, who knows, that might be a a cathartic thing for you to do. But I don't think there's anything shameful about that. It's, it just makes me want to give you a hug. But my breasts are sadly really hitting a lactating low. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? And by the way, you are not the only one that I have heard share this fantasy. This is not an uncommon fantasy. Um, I would like to tell my dad that I am sorry for being so angry at him, especially for having to take care of him while he died slowly of cancer alone in his apartment. I would hug him because I never did and just be there. I believe that people's spirits still exist and... Sometimes I talk to people that aren't here anymore, just in case their spirit is out there. And I have the feeling that your dad doesn't want you beating yourself up for that, that he wants you to be happy and at peace. Uh, What, if anything, do you wish for to feel unconditional love, if if that exists? It does exist, but it's not easy to find, and it is the most worthy quest you can ever, ever ever go on. Um, Have you shared these things with others? I've shared a bit about my past abuse with my husband. I started going to therapy because I was getting the vibe that he was sick of me. I will never share about the emotional catfishing ever. I think you should share that with your therapist, though. I do. Because underneath that is a nugget that your therapist can latch onto and help you mine so that you can process the feelings that's underneath that because it's not about the action it's about the feelings that drive us into the actions you know the actions we think are always the the be you know the beginning and the end of the problem because that's where it meets the physical world but 
it's the emotional world that is the gasoline those act, those actions run on. How do you feel after writing these things down? I am thankful for this podcast and this survey in order to share anonymously and not be afraid of being judged. This is who I am, and I hope one day somebody will be okay with that. You sound like a really beautiful, sensitive person who has had their trust broken many times and who wouldn't be afraid of being vulnerable again and putting yourself out there. But it will be the greatest thing that you can do for yourself. Thank you for sharing that. And this is really sweet. Um, I've been a long time listener. I feel like you are my friend. When you lost your dog, I cried. When you and your wife separated, it hurt. I know you don't know me and probably don't care to, LOL, she wrote. But you do mean a lot to me. On my long commute home, you are a family. You're going to make me cry. That means a lot to me. It really does. This Let's see, I don't want to read. I am going to fast forward because I am running out of energy to two more surveys. One is an awful moment and the other is a happy moment. And um, this first one is an awful moment filled out by Pepper Potts. And she writes, I've had bad experiences with therapists. For example, with one therapist, as I was describing how overly sensitive I was to other people's body language and the general vibe they give off, I looked up at her to find her nodding off, doing that little head bob thing, trying to stay awake. That is so fucked up. Uh, but about a year ago, I finally found a therapist I liked. Unfortunately, for a few reasons, and cost being the main one, I stopped going after a couple of sessions. After getting back into the podcast, I kept thinking to myself, I really need to go back to see her. Every day, I would think about what relevant things happened to me over the last year and try to figure out how much stuff I could jam into one hour-long session. I kept telling myself, tomorrow I'll book the appointment, but never did. Finally, this morning, I called and made the appointment. I was so proud of myself for taking a step towards better mental health. I even talked to my sister about it, since she is going through mental issues of her own. Last night, uh, later that night, I received a message from my sister. I open it, and it's a link to an article about my wonderful therapist getting her license revoked over accusations of having sexual relations with her clients. <laughs> Don't give up looking. Don't give up looking. Oh, I'm always so afraid when I when I read. The codependent in me is so afraid when I read about a negative therapy or support group experience that somebody has that they're going to think that that stands for all therapists or all support groups. And it so doesn't. Uh, and finally, this is a happy moment that I just, it's so subtle and human, and I just fucking love it. Um, 
and it's by a therapist uh, in training. And uh, she calls herself therapist in training going to therapy. And she writes, you read one of my surveys on the show a few months ago, and I was just listening to it and realizing how far I've come, not just since I submitted that survey, but my whole life thus far. I still have major struggles in social anxiety, binge eating, and suicidal ideation, but life has been good to me lately. I'm six months away from graduating with a master's in social work, and I'm currently fulfilling my internship requirements as a mental health therapist at an outpatient clinic. I absolutely love it. This is definitely what I want to do forever. This new role has been forcing me out of my shell and forcing me to confront my issues by seeking out my own therapy, and as much as I want to numb out most days, I try hard to resist. Even if I fail and numb out anyway through binging, watching TV for hours straight, engaging in a self-destructive rabbit hole of ruminating on how worthless I feel, or on the other end of that, pretending I don't have any feelings at all, usually a combination of all of these, I still have come so far in terms of my self-awareness and my willingness to admit my problems and to actively try to change them. See, that is what I love. That is the difference between this and that therapist at the end of the other one. That other therapist clearly is a fucking malignant narcissist that didn't want to get help. You know, if you are misusing your authority to sleep with your clients, um, you know, that that is somebody with very little conscience. And what I love about this survey is this is a human. This is a this is a, a therapist who has feelings and struggles like the rest of us, but she's fucking looking into the face of the the jaws of the beast and marching forward. And she's getting knocked down and she's getting up and and that's what it's that's what it's all about. And she's being self disclosing and honest, even though it's uncomfortable. And that those kinds of people are my are my fucking heroes. Um Sometimes I feel intense imposter syndrome. Who am I to help other people when I am such a mess myself? But every day when I provide services for other people, whether that's doing therapy, assessments, diagnosing, running therapy groups, or any other mental health-related activity, I am reminded that this is the thing I was born to do. I may still struggle, but I am still capable of helping others. It is such an important sense sentence. I may still struggle, but I am still capable of helping others. Because I, in my support groups, when I, you know, am not working the perfect program, I will tell myself, who am I to help somebody else? And that's the lie. That's the shame talking. I may still struggle, but I am capable of helping others. I may still be really engaged in my eating disorder and super anxious and codependent and avoidant, but I am still doing my best and I can't be perfect. I guess this isn't a happy, quote, moment, but rather a realization of slow burn happiness. I still want to be numb sometimes because it's easier to be numb than to feel everything that goes along with being alive. And it is so hard to be alive sometimes, but it's so much more rewarding not to feel numb. I guess I just want to offer hope out there to everyone struggling. I realize that without my struggles, I probably wouldn't be as empathetic or as good of a therapist because when people tell me what they are going through, I feel it in my heart, not just in an academic way. 
I've also finally started actually doing the coping skills I suggest to clients. For example, I recently started journaling every day and it's actually helping me feel better. It's not a miracle fix, but I feel more genuine when I talk to clients about coping skills that I actually have used myself. There's a small part of me that thinks it's narcissistic to even submit this positive thing about myself, but the bigger part of me knows that's not true. So here's to all the helpers who are getting help themselves, who need help but are scared to get it or feel intense imposter syndrome, or like me, all three, all the time, you're not alone. That is a Christmas present that you just you just gave me, and that just warmed my feet. It's moving its way up to my heart. It's a little chilly here. It's at my knees. It's currently approaching my buttocks. It's now in my bowels. We're almost there. You have warmed my heart. It's now going past my heart. It's in my neck. I'm getting short of breath. I'm feeling dizzy. My left arm is tingling. And you're going to jail for... (laughs) for giving me a warm feeling that didn't know when to stop. No, but thank you so much for that. And thank you to everyone out there who contributes to this podcast or gets anything from it. Um, it's, I love this community. Um, it does not feel like me and them, you know, it, it's, I'm just really, really grateful. And, um, no matter what you're going through, never forget that you're not alone and survive the holidays you can make it you can make it deep breaths and remember that you're not alone thanks for listening everybody i know is bizarrely beautiful everybody i know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way